Hey everyone, and welcome to Dear Fandom, where everything you like is terrible. And that's okay. I'm Megan. And I'm Hillary. And today we're going to talk uh, kind of topically about the HBO series Watchmen, which is based on the 1987 DC comic series Watchmen, which had a movie that came out in 2009 called Watchmen. Watchmen. <laughs> so we're good, guys. All you need to know is that one word. Um, so the, CV, the TV series was created in 2019. It was released uh, for nine episodes. It ran between October 20th and its last episode was December 15th. I watched this series as it aired uh, back in October and uh, I read the Watchmen um, graphic novel back in 2009, so about 10 years prior. Uh, actually, no, 2008, and I went to see the film. Uh, it was the only midnight premiere I've ever gone to. I carried a sign that said, The End is Nigh, and the movie came out 3-6-2009. And uh, I'm really proud of that. <laughs> and I went to see it with my mom. So if you know anything about Watchmen, there's one thing that you'll really remember, which is the really long, uncomfortable sex scene. So I'm just starting the episode this way, so we all get it out of the way first. And I went to see it with my mom. So just so you know, we're getting rid of the awkward stuff right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. In, <laughs> in terms of Watchmen, the HBO TV series, they also have sex scenes. However, they're not as long. They're not as uncomfortable. And I wasn't with my mom because I was in my late 20s. So benefits all around here. <laughs> you, you truly, you truly love to see it. I in do. The TV sh- in the TV show, you truly love to see it. Oh, in absolutely. The, in the movie, you wish it never happened. <laughs> no, yeah. In the movie. So uh, just a brief synopsis. We'll touch more on Watchmen, the graphic novel and the movie uh probably next week or the week after um but it's it's set in 85 it has to do with a alternate universe america in which richard nixon was elected for four terms kind of the equivalency of an fdr uh type you know where people just wanted to to continue having him in office however there's like a heavy conservative skew to the people of america in the watchman universe uh superheroes uh so costumed adventurers were a real a reality there weren't any superheroes there wasn't anybody like spider-man or the X-Men or, or Green Lantern or anything like that. Uh, but one of the pivotal characters in this uh, t- in the graphic novel was this character named Dr. Manhattan. He's a man named John Osterman, who uh, in 59, I believe, he was, uh, he was working in a physics laboratory in Gila Flats, New Mexico, left his watch in a uh, intrinsic field generator. And uh, he the reason he ran back to get it is because it was a gift from his father who he had a long-standing relationship with and his relationship with clocks is all around his relationship with his father. Went in to grab it and was torn apart atom by atom. And then over the la- next few months, he learned to build himself back together and he became this character named Dr. Manhattan, which is not a name he gave himself. It was a name given to him by the... Uh, the television pundits of the time uh, based on the Manhattan Project. And uh, so HBO's series is set 34 years uh, to modern day, 2019. And by modern day, I mean modern day in terms of the universe that Watchmen is set in. So some things that we need to get straight right off the bat is that uh, Damon Lindelof is the creator of this show, and Damon Lindelof is the creator of such TV shows as Leftovers and Lost, and and just really known for TV shows where you're, you're watching each episode and you have absolutely no idea what is coming in the next one. You just want to know, and and Watchmen is a is a self-contained season. There's going to be no additional seasons, and as a fan of Watchmen, I believe that's correct. You shouldn't have to sequel or do anything additional because Alan Moore in his original run did not create five more runs of Watchmen to tell you what happened with these characters. It's it's a lot of it is left up to the imagination of the audience. Yeah. 
So, uh, Dr. Manhattan plays a part in this, in this show, along with two other characters from the original show, uh, original movie, uh, slash graphic novel, Lori, uh, Juicebeck, who is, um, uh, Silk Spectre 2. Her mother was Silk Spectre 1. She's Silk Spectre 2. In the events of the show, she's in her 70s. And then you have, uh, Adrian Veidt, who is Ozymandias, and he is your... I wouldn't say he's the villain of the of the uh, graphic novel, but he is absolutely a kind of antagonistic character in the sense that he he is the one who, at the end of the book, spoiler, he uh, unleashes a squid uh, into Manhattan, killing three million people with this kind of psychic energy wave. And uh, the reason reform occurs in America is due to this act of killing three million innocent Americans. It has to do with this whole... Uh, because the Cold War was still something that was very real and still very much a threat to the American people in the 80s in this alternate universe. So this this attack was done on New, in, on New York City, one of the most densely populated cities in, in the world, and it killed three million people with no real uh, rhyme or reason. It was just anyone in the vicinity of, I believe the, the attack hit... Um, it could have been either Times Square or the Chrysler Building. I'd have to confirm that. But it, it's in the center of New York. And... Uh, and what happens is, is it's a weight. It, it creates this uh, chain reaction in, in America and throughout the world, where uh, we all we all decide as the human race to unite against the aliens. And then Independence Day happens. No, um, and Will Smith just and then Will exactly, and we're all saved. So this now we jump ahead thirty four years, and in the thirty four year time span between the alien squid attack on New York in 2019. We've changed locations. We've changed so, locations. Robert Redford was president. Yes. Um. So what happens is, is due to this gigantic attack is conservative ideas, you know, what is good for just the country instead of the world, what is good for the, the self instead of the whole, it kind of switches in this very, very drastic switch. Uh, so Ronald Reagan was never elected in this universe. And actually, there is a president between Nixon and uh, Robert Redford, who is their, who is their their uh, progressive Ronald Reagan. And there's uh, <clears throat> Gerald Ford is actually elected between um, Nixon and Redford, which is interesting because they never really elaborate. I guess he was just kind of a. It could have been that Nixon was still impeached. It was never really emphasized as to how Nixon left office, if he was voted out, anything like that. It was just that Nixon and then is followed by Gerald Ford and then is followed by Robert Redford, who, in the same vein as Nixon, serves a term of 30 plus years, uh, continuing into the current events of the TV show. And Redford is an extremely progressive president, the likes of which our society has never seen. Redford uses uh, his power as the president of the United States to enact something that has never been done before in this version of America, which is reparations for black citizens of America who specifically have suffered injustices within the last 100 years. And the example, the case in point that they use for the injustices is the uh, Tulsa Massacre, which was a real event that really occurred on Black Wall Street in 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was a flourishing community, uh, and it was one of the most successful areas in the country for black Americans. Lots of businesses, lots of enterprise, lots of ability for success. And what happened in this massacre is in the course of 24 hours, uh, every white citizen, and I don't mean just the Ku Klux Klan, I mean every white citizen that was in Tulsa decided that they were uncomfortable with this and they took up arms, and I mean not just guns and pistols, 
I mean, and shotguns and things like that. They, they flew planes and dropped bombs and uh, decimated this area of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the, the official death was listed as 15 people. And that is based on our own, uh, the um, America's own reporting of the death. And it has now been identified that it could be higher than 300 people who died in that. And that wouldn't be just uh, men. It would be women, children, infants, just so many more people, elderly people, just so much more than I think we as a society could have grasped. And to... And the show opens on this. The show opens on the massacre of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's, you see this small character, a young boy, who is uh, later revealed to the audience to be, his name is Will Reeves. He's the grandfather of a character named Angela Abar. Uh, she's your your main character in this story. She's uh, known as Sister Knight. Sort of your, uh, I guess, she's more so your central figure than Rorschach was. Rorschach was more of your narrator and your, he got you got his internal monologue. Uh, Angela is more of a central figure in the sense that she is the audience placement and that she doesn't really know what's going on as much as we don't know what's going on. Well, yeah, and also Angela's role in society is different. Rorschach is a fringe character, whereas Angela Abar is fully integrated into society. Absolutely. So so it starts with Will. And basically, Will is a small child, I think about five years old, Mm -hmm. uh, during this massacre. And he... uh, one of the heaviest uh, messages from the beginning is uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of double, uh, I, I guess, a dual story of... Uh, so the story of Superman is that his parents were about to be killed. They put him in a ship and sent him to Earth so that he could live a life where he didn't have to worry. Uh, that's also, I mean, more popular than that story is the story of Moses. <laughs> and sent in a ship, in a, in a, in a basket covered in a blanket, ended up at Pharaoh's and was saved and became the savior of the Jewish people. So you have two you have two very, very well-known stories, both religious and comic in nature. And uh, and with Will, he is placed in the back of a uh, of a car of a, of a cart and his uh, his parents stay behind. His parents know that they cannot come with him, but his life needs to be saved. And Unfortunately, the uh, the card is attacked, but he is hidden inside of a trunk, and he survives this attack. He finds a little baby wrapped up in the American flag, and he comforts this small child, this this infant who's no more than eight months old. And uh, as he holds the baby, he says, "You're okay," and he looks back and he sees all of Tulsa burning. And then it skips ahead to. 2019 and it's just such a strong image to open on specifically because i'll be the first to admit and there were hundreds of thousands of people who were the who were the first to admit that they had no idea that this was a real thing that really occurred in real life and this was part of american history yeah i didn't know either so i had looked this up immediately after watching this show and i was like wow that's some crazy thing that damon lindelof created and it's not and robert redford in his administration uh so he takes any acts of mass violence against black Americans, specifically within the last 100 years. So I guess uh, I guess he stretches back as far as maybe the 1880s, and um, based on or maybe the 1890s, depending on when he was elected. And he uh, and he gives reparations to every descendant of anyone who was maimed, killed. Uh, injured, anything like that during these mass violence attacks. Uh, Tulsa is the example that they use throughout the show, but it's it's implied in the show that it's in 
it's in multiple states throughout the country and it's you they use this word called redfordations instead of reparations because it was robert redford who enacted this this uh policy however in the way it's used in the show it's used in kind of a it's a racist word it's meant to be a slur and it's meant to uh it's meant to have a visceral reaction uh and it's that's made clear from the moment angela's character is introduced uh she is uh she's a black woman who grew up in vietnam which in this universe is the 51st state of of america because we won the vietnam war and she was raised in saigon and she owns a bakery um and which is her cover because she is in fact a police officer and uh one of the children in this class with a lot of malice and anger in his voice, it's, he's 10 years old, he insinuates that the reason she can own this bakery is because she bought it with her reparation money. And uh, she has an adopted son named Topher. Topher in that moment just goes for it and attacks his kid. <laughs> and it's, so it's, it's, it's great, but uh, one, of, one of the best things I, I think with regards to this TV show is the relationship that Angela has to Topher. And it's not really uh, elaborated on a bunch. There's a lot that this show does, which, with regards to uh, breaking down what I would consider tropes in Hollywood, the idea that you know there's no such thing as a house husband, and if if there is, you have to make sure it's very obvious that he's very effeminate, or he's very obviously said that he's a house husband for a reason. He has to let everyone know he's the house husband. Um, and you know, like it's, and you're in your, the, the mother of the house, she specifically has to be this like very cold, unfeeling mother who has no relationship with her children type. These are the tropes that you normally see when it comes to a strong female character and her family. And also, um, they're black parents with white adopted children, which yes. is not the thing. It's like, usually the, the stereotype is like the affluent white parent adopts a child from outside of their race to show how how, like sort of benevolent they are yeah exactly i mean you can the best the best example i can think of is is uh i mean well recently it, it's there's been a whole bunch of controversy regarding to micah stauffer and her adoption of a, of a young chinese boy who is autistic and then having to give him away and that is basically the the kind of idea that you're used to these white savior type characters and um especially adopting uh minority children and uh with angela and cal who is her husband it's the reason you find out the reason these children have been adopted by them is because uh in 2016 three years before the events of the tv show uh there was a mass attack on police uh, a coordinated attack in which they went to 40 different police officers homes and um and they killed everyone involved uh there only two people survived uh the chief of police judd crawford and Angela Abar, who is our main character. Now, big, it, it, upon review, when you watch this TV show, you don't know what the story is. You don't know what the plot is. You just see, you know, Judd and Angela, and they obviously have this very, very strong bond together. And they do revisit the White Knight in the second episode, and you see Angela waking up, and Judd is right there with her. But you can see at that moment in the show Judd is not her friend. Judd is very much her superior and very much, I think as a viewer, you you want to believe that they became friends due to surviving this horrific incident together. But after you finish the show, you go, oh, he became friends with her because he was the only one who was meant to live and she survived for a very, very specific reason. <laughs> and, hey. and, he, and he knew that he had to get close. And a traumatic event always brings people close together. Yes, that, that's what I was just about to say. So it's, it's uh, I, I, I can say that 
so much so of, of Angela, Cal, and their children. It's it, it defies expectations in terms of what you expect to see on television. That isn't to say that at any point do I feel like anybody is ever like, ah, let me explain what we do. They never have to feed the audience like okay, you know, this is why this exists and this is how they exist. It's just taken as fact. Angela is a full-time earner. Cal is a full-time dad. The kids love him. Their two daughters, Rosie and I think it's Emma, absolutely adore Cal as a father. And Topher really loves his mother in, in, in the way that... that uh, it really comes through in a lot of the conversations that you see between Topher and... Angela. There's a scene after Judd's uh, character has been hanged in the first episode and Angela sits Topher down and she straight up tells him Uncle Judd is dead. And Topher reacts in such an amazingly uh, adult mature way but I think it's because his mother in turn is treating him like an adult and it deals with all these dynamics I mean it also deals with um, when when uh, Topher eventually tells his sisters that Judd is dead they're they're arguing over whether or not he went to heaven Cal sits the children down and he says there's no such thing as heaven uh, Judd was nothing before he was born and after he dies he's nothing as well and the children don't think deep into it they go okay and then he goes who wants waffles and everyone's like me <laughs> because it, it it this show while dealing with heavily how race impacts america it also deals a lot with a, a parent's relationship to their child and how you don't need to treat a child like a child you can speak to them like an adult just you don't have to use big jargon and vocabulary just speak to them like an adult and they will understand mm -hmm. yeah so getting back to Judd, uh, Judd is the chief of police, and the big spoiler for him is after he's killed by a hundred-year-old man in a wheelchair, ends up being Will Reeves. Yeah, uh, da -da -da. he's a racist. <laughs> yes, uh, Angela goes to his house after being told by Will that there are skeletons in his closet. She specifically looks in his closet. She goes to his memorial at his home, opens up his closet. There is a Ku Klux Klan uh, robe in this uh, closet. And later on, one of the episodes called This Extraordinary Being, it's uh, specifically dedicated to Will Reeves, which I'm going to touch on in a second. But at the end of the episode, it, it goes to Will and Judd and how Will killed Judd. Will killed Judd through mesmerism, mind control with flashing lights. And... Uh, and he says to him, he says, you've got that clan robe in your closet. And he goes, I'm entitled to it. It's my legacy. Will looks at him and says, if you're so proud of your legacy, why don't you show it? And it's, it's such a biting question because it's something that a lot of supremacists are proud of their legacy. But when confronted with the reality that racism and white supremacy are just built on the backs of murder and torture and slavery and and bondage and and you know things like that they don't they don't feel proud but they are proud around other white people well yeah that's the thing that's the whole thing about um the confederate flag and confederate statues and those uh lately in the news um uh it I will, I'll be uploading this episode very shortly after we record it so it'll still be relevant good but um Several um, several Confederate statues have been torn down, and one in Bristol was thrown into a river. Yes. And um, a lot of the argument for Confederate statues and the Confederate flag and people using it is it's our heritage, it's our legacy, it's, our, it's protecting our American way of life. But, like, you know it's wrong. 
Absolutely. Like, you Absolutely. know what's wrong. I think one of the one of the best things that I think uh, can come of of acknowledging the past is not to romanticize it or make it something better than it was, but to acknowledge that it's traumatic and your past affects who you are, whether it's your past or your family's past or, or the past of your country. Acknowledging the past doesn't necessarily say, um, you know, you're, you're giving some kind of moral judgment to it. By acknowledging it and putting it in a light, like with even the bigger picture of Robert Redford and creating the Redfordations, it is, it is acknowledging that America has a dark history and we are trying to correct it. It is not to say we're sorry for what happened because there's no taking that back. It's already occurred. They, they you know, they apologize, but it's, there's only so much you can do to correct suffering. And what they're doing is creating this, this promise to create a better world for minority culture in America, for black people in America. And that starts with the small, with, with, re with, with, giving out reparations because of the amount of pain and suffering black people have had in America. So getting to Will Reeves. Now, Will Reeves is 100 years old, about 100 years old, I think 101 or no, like 98, 99. Yes, 99. He's um, so he's almost 100 years old. And uh, Will Reeves's character was the little boy that, that survived the Tulsa massacre, which is already in its in its essence one of the most traumatic events that you can imagine as a child having to go through. Uh, and Will and this little baby that he saved end up, you, you, you know, that you then cut away. And this is going to these, this episode, this extraordinary being, I believe it's episode seven. And uh, it's Will in New York. It's uh, he's a police officer. He's uh, one of the, the uh, newest police cadets to be um, inducted into the NYPD. And he is uh, he has his shield pinned on him by Lieutenant Battle. And Lieutenant Battle is a real man who really existed. And he was the first black sergeant uh, lieutenant in the NYPD. He was also the first black officer in the NYPD in general. And one of the things that I don't know if you knew this. So there is a uh, Will's character as he's a police officer. He patrols the streets. And at one point, he sees this heavyset blonde man light a Molotov cocktail and throw it into a Jewish deli. Now, that man's name is Fred. Uh, his last name is Trump. <sighs> I wanted to just let you and every listener know that Fred, the character in Watchmen, is Fred Trump. That is who he is meant to be. And uh, the oh reason there's God. there's about 20,000 heavy handed references that you only catch upon further watches. And it's that Fred owns a grocery store called FT and Sons. Um, he's uh, he's blonde and chunky as shit. And he's uh, hateful as hell. And and just as uh, <clears throat> and he is literally Fred Trump. He is absolutely Fred Trump. They just never say his last name. And. Fred Trump's real name was Fred Trump. Donald Trump's father is a supreme, was a supreme white supremacist who hated anyone who was not white and specifically Protestant. God, my heart just fucking dropped. So uh, what occurs is uh, Will, Will in, a, in an attempt to bring this man in, he finds out about this conspiracy going on within the NYPD called Cyclops. And it's basically a white supremacy organization that the Ku Klux Klan is using in New York under the name Cyclops. Oh, you mean the current NYPD? You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say nothing. Um, <laughs> and it's it's uh, it's run. I mean, this is a little bit more fantastical in that sense. But uh, they, they are using the power of mesmerism, which is, uh, you know... Uh, epileptic flashing lights like very very quick succession flashing lights to hypnotize people and whatever is being 
uh, projected over the speakers, the people feel compelled to do. So over the course of the show, um, they do this once at a movie theater in Harlem. And it is uh, a riot-type situation. Uh, people are attacking each other, killing each other. And what Will finds out is that this was the result of mesmerism. These people didn't just decide to attack and kill each other. They were being infiltrated in their brains to attack and kill. And uh, it was all in an attempt by the white supremacist organization Cyclops to make black people seem uh, less than, like subhuman, uh, just only capable of rage and anger type situation. Dangerous thugs, you know. The, exactly. The... So here's here's the uh, the kicker is that um, when when Will gets involved in all of this, before the cops really know how involved he is, they they take him, and in in an act of, of true just just inhumane cruelty and and just the most disgusting. piece of shit that white people have ever done in terms of two black Americans is uh, they threatened him with a lynching. They put a hood over his head, they tied a noose around his neck, and they binded his wrists, and uh, they, they attempted to hang him, but not with the intent to kill, with the intent to scare to the point of silence. And uh, yeah, because they cut him down to the last second. And they did. Like, That's what you get, you know. And, and they cut him down. I think truly, for me as a, as a watcher, I think the reason that Will was cut down is because he was part of the NYPD, and um, they needed to make sure as a as a as a group that is majority. And I mean, at that time, it was almost a hundred percent majority white people. They didn't want to kill. Him, they wanted to send a message to anyone who he interacted with or who wanted to join the police force, don't fuck with us. Mm-hmm. And so Will is just, I mean, absolutely traumatized by this event as any human would be. Uh, and he's heading home. He's he's just, he's at a loss for words. He can't function. And um, he sees, as he's walking in the alleys of New York, he sees a, a couple being beat up. And... Uh, Thugs are attacking them. Just, just white, you know, thugs who are punching them, trying to steal her money and her pearls, and his money. Their child isn't out with them that night, though. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> and um, and so Will sees this, and Will wants to fight these white men, but he immediately thinks, "I am a black man, and it is the 1940s in America." It is, yeah, no, that would not have gone down well. He it would have be, been pinned for the crime. Exactly, and so what he did was he's holding his hood in his hand, which he, which he's been holding his entire walk home, and he punches two holes out with his thumbs for his eyes. He places the hood over his head, and he just attacks these men with an anger that is just so deeply rooted in him because of the injustices not only he has faced but his mother his father his people have faced and he kicks the ever-loving shit out of them he doesn't kill them but he does beat them into such a point of submission that thomas and martha wayne survive and batman never exists in this universe (laughs) yeah so So, and his character ends up becoming Hooded Justice, who is, when in the original Watchmen, one of the biggest unanswered questions was, who is Hooded Justice? Every other Minuteman character who was, uh, who are the costumed adventurers from the 1940s, everyone had a name and an identity to go along with it. Um, Hooded Justice's was always up for debate, as was his sexuality. It was something Alan Moore never set in stone, and it was a very much a point of contention for the fandom. Um, uh, yeah, in the comic book, it is implied that he's white 
because I that that is the impression that I got when reading it. But I love the interpretation that he's black because it makes so much more sense for exactly. an American context. I like, mean, it's that's the thing is it's impl- it's implied as the reader, but because you never see his hands, you never see his neck, you only ever see the part around his eyes. It is absolutely like an implication that that so in the show. Uh, his, he goes home to his wife June, who uh, I think she she finds that that using this this co- this costumed character, this hooded justice, as a way to properly express his rage is helpful for him, at least in this moment of the show. And uh, she advises him to paint the area around his eyes white, so that way white people believe that a white person is defending them, and there will be no. Uh, There won't be any uneasiness on behalf of white people that they can just feel comfortable that a white person is defending them from the from Moloch, the malevolent or whatever that the hell that guy's name is. And uh, and he does, uh, you know, Hooded Justice is the first of the costumed adventurers. He's the first one and he does it on behalf of justice. He doesn't do it because he wants to be famous. He did it because of justice. And one of the things that that um, that Alan Moore created with the original Minutemen was that uh, the, they were not there for justice. They were there for fame. A mascot, for instance, in Dollar Bill Montgomery. He was a mascot for a bank. He was not a superhero. He was a te- he was he was a mascot, and he just happened to like try to defend banks. And uh, spoiler alert: he dies because he gets shot in the head because his cape gets caught in a revolving door. Um, Mothman was a mentally unstable man who uh, just wanted to dress up and have fun and punch people. He ends up getting committed to, uh, due to, you know, delusions of grandeur and and he gets shipped off. The silhouette is, uh, I actually don't know exactly what her entire backstory is. I believed, uh, when I read, my implication was that the silhouette was, uh, was of the impression that women were fighters too. And she just wanted to be on an equal standing with men. And, uh, she was actually kicked out of the Minutemen due to her being a lesbian and in a lesbian relationship and her and her uh, I, her partner are shot and killed uh, and on the wall lesbian whore is written or whores is written uh, Sally Jupiter aka Silk Spectre number one she became a superhero or a costumed adventurer just because she wanted to be famous she wanted to be a model she wanted to be a pinup and yeah she was much more she's definitely like um, the Marilyn Monroe kind of like absolutely figure absolutely not like you know, Marilyn Monroe was, like, a legitimate actress, but she wasn't known for being an actress. She was known for being, like, hot. And, exactly. And, Sa- and Sally wanted the exact same thing. And then you have the comedian. The comedian was 16 when he joined the Minutemen, and 16-year-olds make stupid decisions all of the fucking time. Um, and then you have the, the, the creator of the Minutemen, Captain Metropolis. And Captain Metropolis was just a rich man with too much money and too much time on his hands, so he decided to gather his friends together and pretend like they were fighting crime. Uh, and one of the one of the things, like I said, that, that uh, more implicated but never uh, addressed was that Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis were in a in a sexual relationship, and uh, the TV show actually is a TV show within the TV show uh, called American Hero Story, aka just like our American Crime Story or American Horror Story, and uh, it's it's actually filmed with. Uh, Cheyenne Jackson plays Hooded Justice. And Cheyenne Jackson, if you don't know, he's been in several seasons of American Horror Story, in addition to also being a gay man. So, great, lovely casting. Um, 
Um, really, I appreciated it most because uh, I adore American Horror Story. And so uh, they do in the in the TV show. It's heavy handed. I mean, they're having like hardcore sex in in costumes, whereas in real life, as in most things with real life, it wasn't that kinky. <laughs> and uh, and Captain Metropolis goes to Will's house, and he. His, his immediate assumption is that Will is not Hooded Justice. Will is feeding Hooded Justice information. And uh, we cut to the next scene, and uh, Will's fucking <laughs> Captain Metropolis, you know. Oh so, you know. Yeah, I like, know. Like, the thing is, like, because of the implication in the comic book that they were in a relationship, like, I knew it was going to happen. But, like, when they just... I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, luckily in the in the actual flashback scene, instead of instead of watching uh, Wade eat beans to Cheyenne Jackson fucking a blonde dude in the ass, you're like, oh, that's. <laughs> I truly, when I watched that scene for the first time, quick sidebar, but when I was watching Tim Blake Nelson eat beans like Rorschach to two dudes fucking each other, I'm like, is this porn? Did he buy this? What's going on? And upon review, I'm like, oh, it's American Hero Story. Oh, what? Yeah, <laughs> no, my thought was like, did, did they film me? Like, <laughs> so so okay so uh wrapping everything up will and uh I, nelson nelson is captain metropolis his name nelson gardner uh will and nelson enter into a relationship and the entire time will is treated very much like a you know mistake or, or something that he, nelson has to hide and nelson believes because he is a gay white man he is above Will, even though Will is the one who created the idea of fighting in a mask, is legitimately fighting for justice. And at the end of the episode, he takes down, he believes that he takes down Cyclops because he fights. It's, it's, it's a beautifully shot scene. He's kicking the shit out of KKK members. He's killing them left and right. And it's just this very cathartic, you know, inglorious bastards kind of moment, uh, Django yeah. Unchained. It's it's this catharsis of, of, of justice that we didn't get to see in our own history. And... He sets this warehouse that contains all this mesmerism footage that they are going to send to movie theaters around the country. He sets it on fire and he has believed that he has foiled their scheme. And um, what actually ends up happening in Will in Will's life because we don't really we don't really see him between um, you know his 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 late twenties thirties into uh, when he's almost a hundred years old and the reason is so uh, his son starts to idolize him paints his face white like well his his mask area white because he sees his dad doing it and it causes a lot of anger for Will only due to the fact that he doesn't want his son to have to do this. This is something he has to do so it will be corrected and fixed. And June, in an effort of of shielding her child, who she's been raising this small boy on her own because her husband has been out fighting crime and fucking other men, and she takes her son and she takes him to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and she and she basically leaves Will just because she cannot... This is something that is she's afraid that that his anger will one day be misdirected towards herself and her son and which is a very valid fear i think one of the things that i did watch was i was watching a uh, pseudo documentary um on on a uh, youtube by macabre storytelling and he was talking about where did this anger and will come from and i think it's just as a man it's really hard for you to if you've ever been with someone who is an angry person i think you always do wonder that will that anger be directed at me one day yeah i think um I think Will's anger is just manifested. I think it's the anger 
and obviously, very, very obviously, um, uh, I will never experience this before in my life. But um, from what I've been reading on Twitter and, you know, from like what I watched in the show and stuff, there's this and from what my black friends have told me it's like you have to work twice as hard to get half of the respect exactly and i think that builds over time and he's he's angry for himself and then when he gets angry i don't like of course of course like when you're in a relationship with someone with anger issues like i have i have dated people with anger issues and you're you're fucking terrified that they're going to turn on you one day but like i think he never had bad intentions. It was always like so good. And that's like the problem, you know? Well, I would say that, I would say that, you know, because, uh, I mean, we also have to acknowledge that Damon Lindelof is the one that wrote this and created this. So as a white man, he doesn't, he can't really speak to the black experience no, of, you know, of, of, of being a woman, of being a woman of color in a relationship like that. But I can tell you as somebody who, who was a child whose parents, um, whose father has resorted to anger a lot of the time, anger often it's 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 just such an un, like it, it, we all have it it's, a, it's an emotion that we all have but it's never going to always be channeled healthily especially with regards to someone like will who was using it as a way to to right wrongs and right injustices and things like that and he was and i think that june in her attempt to protect her child i can see the reasoning why damon lindelof wrote the character this way i mean also you do have to get his son away from him so that way angela has no idea who her grandfather is uh but i do agree that that you know one of the things they do touch on is is how june was very much alone raising uh, marcus oh, yeah no i'm not saying like i'm not saying that what um what will did was right no no i don't i don't think i mean like you're funneling all you have this family and yet you're funneling your life into something else into pursuing this kind of dream of yours when you should really be prioritizing like your son yes but you know i can see where i can see wherever it's like no one's wrong you know no it's no like, absolutely it's they're all valid points of view and uh so just just to like quickly say like so between those two spots of him in his 20s 30s and him in his late 90s uh the reason he was able to I guess so he was always a shameful part of Nelson's life because Nelson really never acknowledged him and uh, Nelson died a bachelor Nelson died a very rich bachelor in New York but he died a bachelor and uh, one of the things that the TV show provides is this supplemental material called Pedipedia which I read every single thing of uh, and <laughs> I have to check that out it's really good it's, I should, should still be up on the HBO website I think it's pedipedia.net uh, and that's p-e-t-e-y Wikipedia, so as in like Wikipedia, .net or .com. I'm not sure. I'm, I can't quote me on that. Um, okay. And uh, Nelson died in the 70s due to complications related from HIV/AIDS, and uh, yep. he left his entire fortune to Will. He left his house. He left everything to Will. And in the 70s, obviously, Will was his. Yeah, no, the 70s. I'm sorry. No, I'm just like my brain is like. My brain is doing like galaxy brain right now. You <laughs> figure out the place of AIDS within this world. But, yes, and um, I mean, well, Nelson lived in New York, so it was uh, it was a you know like like New York has been for the coronavirus. It, it was a it was a uh, epicenter for the epidemic because it was such a safe haven for so many LGBTQIA ad- identifying Americans, and it was it was able to spread so easily due to the inability to have preventative 
care and uh, protection and things like that. Yeah. So, so Will eventually does get a lot of money to the point where, I mean, he can live comfortably for the rest of his life and he has no children, he has no wife. And he, he does, you know, I think he does eventually embrace his identity as a queer black man, which is something that you don't see on TV in terms of older men. You see it a lot, I think, which is lovely for like characters like Billy Porter, like you see in shows like Pose. And obviously it's important to like showcase that as well but it's also important to showcase that queerness and blackness have never been separately existing queerness is something that can coexist within many different kinds of races and ethnicities and, mm -hmm. and sexualities as well and and it's just something that uh, Hooded Justice is Damon Lindelof's take on Hooded Justice I think created this character that we have no comparison for we can't look at Hooded Justice and go yeah, he's just like Black Panther, or yeah, he's just like Luke Cage, or, or anything else. He's he's completely in a realm of his own. And that is what I love about this character. And I wanted to focus specifically on Hooded Justice and Will Reeves and the Tulsa riots of uh, 1921. Sorry, not Tulsa riots, the Tulsa massacre of 1921. Uh, because it is just so relevant and so important to acknowledge that people like Will have always existed. People like Will have always been around and there is there has always a, been a dark part of American history that has just been never talked about nor has been shared with children specifically and in our, yeah. in our curriculum. And I mean, yes, this is absolutely about Watchmen, but this is also about how our mass media, our popular television shows are teaching us more than our curriculum and our education system has about the atrocities committed against black people in America. And it's important to acknowledge as a society and as a country, these things happened. By acknowledging it, you're not saying I did it, I'm taking responsibility, I'm the one who who is, unless you are a fucking raging racist, in which case own your shit. Own your shit if you're racist and, and acknowledge that you have had racist thoughts and you've said racist things and fucking try to do better. Yeah, and and I also think uh, the sort of the existence of the show and um, is sort of um, acknowledging how you benefit from your whiteness. Like, yes, absolutely. Like, I feel like Nelson Nelson's like a great example of that because like he's um, like. Even though, even though he's a gay man, he's a white gay man. Exactly. You know, he's he's a wealthy gay man. Yep. So that like that automatically like he can just hide the gay part. Yeah, his and, gayness like, isn't isn't seen by the eye. Yeah. No. Exactly. And I think um, the show just kind of does a great part of kind of being. Uh, it's even with this alternative reality of a country where reparations should be a thing. Absolutely, like, like absolutely. Should, like, like that's the direction this country needs to be go. Like, uh, aside from you know abolishing policing and stuff like that, we reparations needs to be a thing that happened like years ago. Mm -hmm. But um, even within the alternative America that has been created um, for the purpose of this television series, it really is showing like, you know the ugliness of whiteness, you know? And I think the way that Damon Lindelof specifically framed it, and we'll go into this more, because I, I want to do a follow-up on this next week as well. Yeah, no, um, this, there's definitely a part two for this. There's definitely a part two, and I think it's important to acknowledge that one of the things that Damon Lindelof did was he kind of shone a light on, all right, so let's pretend this this white narrative of, of oh, if we give black people reparations, then white people are going to be poor as hell and living in the, in the, in the, in, in, in like white trash neighborhoods. Well, let's acknowledge, number one, white trash are 
already exists. Um, number two, uh, if you looked at the specific area in which they have their little white trash haven, it's called Nixonville, in which the sense that they're... I mean, it's it's the equivalence. The name Nixonville, it, it's supposed to evoke for at least people who are heavily into Watchmen. It's the equivalent of like racist country right here. Come on by, and and that's what it's. The point is, is that these white people are so stuck in the fact that they believe that they have been wronged. They create an idol to Nixon. They live in trailer parks, and they and they refuse to work to correct the wrongs of their past. No, yeah. And then you have white characters like Wade, who I'm very interested to talk about next week, because next week's going to be more of a discussion on uh, the LGBTQIA characters and characters that suffer a deep trauma that not just in the uh, we're going to talk more about genetic trauma in that sense of of characters like Wade, but also characters like Angela. And, and, you know, not Angela didn't necessarily suffer the injustices of her grandfather, but at one episode, episode seven, this extraordinary being, the reason she's able to know about all of this is because of a fictional drug that she is able to live her grandfather's life for several days in, in memory form. And and it's just, it's it's one of the most important parts of this show is acknowledging that trauma is real and no one's is better or worse than anyone else's. It's acknowledging your trauma, saying that we're gonna work together to get past it and get through it and then doing that doing better becoming a better person becoming a better ally in the point of wade he says one of the best lines uh for me in this show which is when angela holds up the ku klux klan robe of judd and she's just uh, you know she's flabbergasted she cannot believe judd is a racist and she goes did you know he was a racist and wade who is tim blake nelson who has played so many fucking white hicks in this history of hollywood he looks at angela dead in her eyes and goes he was a white man in oklahoma and if that's not the truest thing i have ever heard from like a white person saying it about another white person he's like listen i i get what you're saying but he was a white dude in oklahoma the odds are that he was going to be racist which is a, a moment of just i think truthfulness as a white man who's in Oklahoma <laughs> and I think um just just before we wrap this up I think yeah. that um I always got to bring capitalism into it Absolutely. Um, I think that it's really important to note the setting of this the fact that it is in flyover country in Nixon country or let's be real Trump country yes. um which is what Lindelof is saying mm-hmm. um and the fact that um Time and time again, poor white people are pitted against black people when mm-hmm. really they should be mad at rich people. Absolutely, and that is, and that is what's ha- that's what's happening in Watchmen. That's what's happening in real America, and you know, um, the 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 we'll go back to our example from the beginning: the racist little white kid in the classroom, um, Red Fordations, You know. He's been taught hatred against black people by his parents who are angry of their financial situation as opposed to as opposed to their um sorry. as opposed to accepting yeah. for the fact that 
that the reason red fredations occurred is due to injustices in the past yeah. his parents would rather blame it on the fact or or credit it to the fact that they got money because they're black and not opposed to the fact that their families were tortured and murdered and drugged through the streets of oklahoma uh and that's they don't know that narrative uh white supremacists don't know the narrative of pain violence and torture no. they know a narrative in strength and uh you know uh, this kind of just uh supremacy of skin color that you are better due to just genetic factors and therefore you are entitled to more you shouldn't have to work for it because you look a certain way and that's just not how it works but and yeah no and you're right and the thing is you, they think that in in the show in the context of the show um, and the context of America. Um, and then when somebody calls them on it, they're like, oh, no, I don't have privilege. I have problems. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm poor. Like, I think I, I think pr the, the, the conversation of privilege is also one that, you know, it does get lost a lot because people equate privilege to things that that we can measure up against one another. Like, oh, I don't have privilege because I was once pulled over and I, by the cops and I had drugs in my car. And like, it's like, that's truly not even close to being an example. <laughs> it's like, Lord, no, that's not, no, sweetie, no. And, uh, and also, what I also want to say is we are going to go heavier into police next week as well. Yeah, no. Because definitely. this was all about specifically, I, I mean, I wanted to talk specifically about race and Watchmen with regards to the characters of Will and Angela. T next week, it's going to be more about how do the police function in this alternate Watchmen universe and why do they function the way they do? Um, and, 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 you know, like, what are the benefits? What are the detriments? And comparing them to the police that we see currently today, the ones that are out in the street, militarized up the fucking wazoo, whereas you have Watchmen cops who have to ask for approval to unholster their gun. Yeah, it's... And who the enemy of the pol the police enemy is the far right as opposed to the far left. It's exactly fascinating. It is. It's an absolute. It's, it's it's a really interesting discussion, and I'm very excited to continue this next week. Uh, please tune in. Um, I know that. You know, if you guys have anything you want to add, feel free to email us. Uh, it's dearfandompodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Dearfandompodcast at gmail.com. Um, we have an Instagram, dearfandompodcast. Uh, yes, that's what it is. Yes, it is. It is. I'm great. I uh, and and just feel free to, to voice your opinions. This is absolutely something we don't just want two voices on. We want as many voices as necessary and as possible. And also, if you can't get out and protest, donate. Donate, donate, donate to as many different organizations. Uh, we'll post links on our Instagram to organizations that we would recommend you donate to. Um, and uh, always look to see, um, you know, talk to your friends, talk to people who you know are organizers in your community, and get out. Yes. Uh, as always, Black Lives Matter. We are with you. We stand with you. And stay safe, please. Absolutely. Uh, no justice, no peace. You all have a great week, and we'll talk soon soon. Bye. Bye.